Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for each and every day. And yes, just boy, how good it is to just take those moments, the time, the day, the week to remember to give thanks, to give thanks to you. And so right now, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit inside of us that will help us to comprehend and put into practice your word. We thank you for your Son who is the word. We thank you for you, Father. Um, we, We give you praise and honor and glory and look forward to what you will share with us from your word of truth this morning. We pray this all in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Today's uh, message in our series here on the Holy Spirit is, uh, is, is going to be kind of a, a little different in terms of just the structure of it. You know, if you've ever been to a place like Hawaii, um, you have a couple of different options for uh, how you kind of visit the islands. You might choose to go to one island and just stay there on that island for your whole time of your trip, and you just really get to know that island well. On uh, another occasion, you might choose to go and start at one island, and then maybe you get into an airplane or a helicopter or a boat, however they do it, and maybe you pop around to another island, and you only are maybe spending a day or two at each, I don't know, or a few days, and then you go to another island, then you pop around to another island, and, and um, neither is a wrong way to do it, it's just different. Today, we are going to be island hopping. We are going to be island hopping as we consider the Holy Spirit in the Gospels and at the beginning of the book of Acts. So we're not doing like an exhaustive of each passage. Here's everything it says. Um, We'll be pulling out some key things from each one, but we're going to be hopping around. Now, most of you know that I have a great affinity, and you hear this in, in some of my illustrations for things like fishing and things like pickleball, um, but if you haven't figured it out, I also love Broadway, and I love musicals, and uh, so you get a music, uh, musical, um, um, uh, um, that's what I'm looking for, <laughs> illustration this morning. Uh, one of the ones I love is uh, West Side Story, and of course, in West Side Story, you have the character of Tony. And Tony is anticipating something good happening to him in the very near future. But he has no idea what that might be. So he sings this song called Something Coming. And he says, I've got a feeling there's a miracle due, gonna come true, coming to me. Could it be? Yes, it could. Something's coming, something good, if I can wait. Something's coming, I don't know what it is, but it is going to be great. And of course, for Tony, what's that something? It's Maria, right? That's the great. It's Maria. And I, I think we've all experienced this feeling of anticipation in some form or fashion, and, and hopefully, uh, oftentimes, it's positive in nature. Sometimes we might anticipating something with a certain sense of dread, but, um, but hopefully a lot of uh, things that we might anticipate are good and positive, and we're eager and we're look, looking forward to them. I remember in my days uh, being an actor, 
And um, I would, you know, you get close on a, a job and you've had three auditions and, and you're, you're anticipating getting the job. You're looking forward to it. Or even once you've got the job, you just can't wait to get on the set and start filming it. Um, we had great anticipation coming here to Calvary Bible Church once we knew that we were coming. Or even before we knew, just in hopes that we would be able to come. The disciples, the disciples, Jesus' disciples, had great anticipation from what they will hear, what they heard from Jesus, especially the night in the upper room and some of the things that Jesus started to share with them. Of course, their anticipation was kind of a mixed bag because he was also telling them that he was going to be leaving them. But here is what you can look forward to, and you should anticipate it with, with great eagerness. Now, so far in our Holy Spirit uh, mini-series, we kicked things off with the introduction, which included a, a historical overview of how the church has understood the Holy Spirit over the last 2,000 years followed by examining his deity, um, the fact that he indeed is God, and, and looking at his personality. In uh, last week's message, we focused on the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and his power in creation, his power in miracles, his power in God's people, and the salvation of the Old Testament or Old Covenant saint to be even more accurate. And this week we press on to the Gospels and the book of Acts. I was hoping we'd get through the whole book of Acts and, and we're not. We're just going to be at the beginning of Acts and I'll have to decide what to do for our last message uh, next week. Because the, the rest of the book of Acts has some great things about the Spirit. But in any case, we're going from Ruach, right? Our Hebrew word for Spirit in the Old Testament to now Numa, Numa, with the same basic meaning of wind or breath. Or spirit. Now for us it's Hagios, Numa, the Holy Spirit. And our first point that we want to examine is the work of the Holy Spirit in the Gospels. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, from the completion of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New, we have this period of some 400 years that we've come to call the intertestamental period where the triune God is relatively silent. But with the beginning of the Gospels, we almost immediately hear of the Holy Spirit's work as Elizabeth, wife of Zacharias, is found to be pregnant past her childbearing years with, of course, John the Baptist, of whom the angel Gabriel told Zacharias he, meaning John, will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Go back and remember some of the ways that the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, with the Old Testament or Old Covenant saint, came upon somebody, was in somebody, or filled somebody, right? This is then followed by Gabriel appearing to Mary and telling her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. That was in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. Cut back then to Elizabeth and Mary and in utero Jesus. When they greet, Elizabeth greets her. 
And Elizabeth is then filled with the Holy Spirit and begins to prophesy, knowing that Mary is pregnant with the Messiah. Cut back to the birth of John, following proud Papa Zacharias, now being filled with the Holy Spirit himself. And he too prophesies not just about the future of his son John, but of the Messiah as well. And as we can see, just like in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit in the Gospels um, also was in and came upon and filled people for some specific purposes and lengths of time. John the Baptist, it seems that, that um, he even had the Holy Spirit from the time he was in his mother's womb until when? Maybe his whole life even. Now there's a mentioning of the Holy Spirit by John that I, I think is noteworthy as it speaks to the Holy Spirit's work in salvation. So with that, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. This is a classic section where John is baptizing people in the Jordan River, and he is just basically waiting for Jesus to show up. And in Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 15, we read this. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, he said this signifying that believers, Christians, will be given the Holy Spirit while unbelievers will receive the fires of judgment. We know this because of the next verse. He says in verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, in other words, those baptized by the Holy Spirit, but he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. That is the baptism by fire that some will receive. We next see all four Gospels share how the Holy Spirit descended from heaven like a dove, right, and remained on Jesus now at his baptism there with John in the Jordan River, whereas Peter says in Acts 10 and verse 38, this is Jesus's anointing by the Holy Spirit. And in fact, Jesus will quote Isaiah 61 and verse 1 in a short while in reference to himself when he's there in the synagogue uh, reading the scripture to the people. And uh, in Luke 4 verse 8, it says, the spirit of the Lord, this is um, uh, from, again, uh, Isaiah 61.1, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the 
Lord, and he mentioned how that passage had been fulfilled there in his, with him being there. And so we see quite clearly that Jesus gets anointed by the Spirit of the Lord, and then we see for what purpose, all of these purposes that he just laid out. Then we move on from Jesus' baptism, and the Holy Spirit is the one who leads Jesus out into the desert for him to then be tempted by the devil. Now suffice it to say, because we are still talking about the Old Covenant, the believers of Jesus' day would have again been considered Old Covenant saints who believed in the promises of God, now more specifically the promises given to them by Jesus. But it's this belief in the gospel that is then still reckoned or credited to them as righteousness. Because you have to remember, Jesus has still yet to go to the cross, right? He hasn't died, he hasn't been buried, he hasn't resurrected from the dead with that full, once-for-all payment for sins. And yet, it's still true that as we learned in the Old Testament, Old Covenant way of doing things, the Holy Spirit is still the one who washes, who regenerates, who renews the old covenant saint unto salvation now in addition to the holy spirit working in certain individuals for specific purposes we also see the holy spirit operate through the miracles of jesus and others that are given that same power so that's just a a little overview of the beginning of the gospels now we're gonna kind of jump in here And focus on our our second point, which is the work of the Holy Spirit in John. We're going to focus specifically in the book of John. Now, this is where we're going to to do those hopping things, because guess what? In like, um, oh gosh, I don't know, you know, like eight years from now, we'll actually be in this section, because we're going to start John in January, all right? So you can look forward to eight years from now, we'll do a more in-depth deal on uh, the passages that we're going to uh, look at. But yeah, that is um, what we're going to uh, preach on here from the pulpit next year. In January, we'll start the book of John. But we want to uh, um, fast forward in the book of John. We're going to primarily focus on chapters 14 to 17, where we see the most concentrated uh, teaching on the Holy Spirit, and especially the Spirit's new up-and-coming role that he will play. But on our way there, we're going to take a pit stop first at John chapter 7. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to John chapter 7, beginning in verse 37. Now, this speaks to what we will see come the day of Pentecost, which happens there in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. The, The context is Jesus is in Jerusalem during the Feast of Booze, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the celebration of the harvest. And uh, we, we read some interesting words here. John 7, beginning in verse 37. John writes, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. For He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, 
whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, friends, the flowing rivers of living water that Jesus is talking about is the future indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which will... um, be brought about at salvation when someone is born again by the Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. In any case, This permanent indwelling was still to come, even for those closest to Jesus, such as his disciples. All right, now we're going to continue on to John 14. So go ahead and turn to John chapter 14. We find ourselves here in the upper room with Jesus and the disciples. It is Passover time. It is the night before his crucifixion and they are troubled his disciples are are grieved as he's told them that he's he's going away and where he's going though they cannot come at least not then but he's also promised them a dwelling place with he and the father and how he will come again and receive them to himself, referring not to his resurrection, but his second coming. He has also shared with them that as far as they have seen and known him, that is Jesus, they have seen and known the Father. Now, something that we have to remember about these chapters from 14 to 17 in the book of John is that the context is specifically speaking of Jesus talking to who? His disciples, right? And so we have to be real careful as we go through this to make sure we understand contextually speaking which of these truths apply to his disciples only and which of these truths would also be good for, say, all of us as believers, all right? And we'll kind of make a few little points along the way to kind of show you what we mean by that. Uh, We're going to be reading the specific passages concerning the Holy Spirit, not the whole um, upper room discourse, and then we'll make some observations and comments just after each little chunk, all right? So this is, again, we're not going to stay put on these passages and exhaust them fully. We'll be doing the island hopping thing. John 14, beginning in verse 16, Jesus says to his disciples, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I'm going to skip down to verse 26. Verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now, number one, Jesus is asking of the Father for someone after himself, right, to be the disciples' paraclete. That's that word there, and we've had that word many times. Paraclete literally means, the Greek word literally means to 
call alongside. And it refers to anyone who might be stepping in to offer aid or even to defend someone else. Secondly, the Father sends the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, to aid us as our helper, comforter, mediator, advocate, and he does so in Jesus' name. In other words, just as Jesus came in his Father's name, which is to say, as his Father's emissary, his representative, so the Holy Spirit will come in Jesus' name as his emissary, his representative. The Holy Spirit will also come as Jesus' witness as that's the whole nature of John's gospel, that it would be a a document that would act as a witness to who Jesus Christ is, his identity. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit we see in this passage will be with us forever, meaning our time on this earth. And fourthly, he is called the Spirit of Truth. And for us who are not receiving divine revelation... That would be all of us. The Holy Spirit guides us in the truth then of God's word. And the world cannot fifthly receive the Holy Spirit. Only believers can. And six, while the Holy Spirit currently abides or remains with the disciples, he will at some point in the future indwell the disciples. And then seventhly, the Holy Spirit will teach the disciples everything they need to know and will cause them to remember all that Jesus said to them, said to them. So this is one of those promises that was specifically said for the disciples, right? I know sometimes you might hear Christians, well, we, we get this uh, uh, cool Holy Spirit and he will cause us to remember all things. I'm sorry, do you remember all things? I will stand before you and say, I sure don't remember all things, you know? And as you get older, you start remembering less things. So you got to remember that the Word of God was not yet written down the way we have it. And so, yes, in this case, the Holy Spirit would, would give something special to the disciples that they could remember. They could remember all that Jesus had told them and taught them. They would need to remember it so that they got it right. Right? Because oftentimes there were those times where the disciples did not get things right when they were just kind of on their own out there. Um, So this is to make sure that they get the gospel message right. And for us, the Holy Spirit works through what? Now we have the Word of God. So the Holy Spirit works through the Word of God to teach us then what we need to know. Turn to John 15, verse 26. John 15, verse 26, Jesus continues. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. So, here again, the Holy Spirit is identified as both Helper and spirit of truth sent by Jesus from the Father, proceeding from the Father. The Holy Spirit will testify about Christ. He will bear witness to Christ, of Christ. 
Thirdly, the disciples, not us here in this context, the disciples will bear witness of Jesus, he says, because they have been with Jesus. And they've been with him since the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, back when he was baptized. They were his eyewitnesses. We're going to skip over to John 16, beginning in verse 15. Uh, Excuse me, verse 5. John 16, verse 5. A little bit longer passage here. Down to verse 15. Jesus says, But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it. To you. So here in verses 5 to 7, the disciples have this deep grief over Jesus going away, even though he tells them that he will be returning to the Father. Jesus ascending to the Father would occur when? After his resurrection. Then, secondly, in verse 7, we see that Jesus is going away, and his going away, he tells them, is to your advantage. It's to the disciples' advantage because now they will receive the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus will now send the Holy Spirit to them. If Jesus doesn't go away, then the Holy Spirit will not come to them. Now, have you ever wondered why that's the case? I mean, why is that? You know, is is it because somehow, some way, Jesus and the Holy Spirit can't minister at the same time or side by side, you know, to, uh, to the disciples? No, that's not the case. They absolutely could if that, was, if that was God's plan and God's will. Rather, the reason is a part of God's greater plan for how he will use the Spirit in the future as Jesus' representative once Jesus returns to his heavenly realm, because that is what has to happen. Then proceeding, uh, he'll be with them through the church age by indwelling believers in that forever way, leading up to Jesus' second coming, followed by his millennial kingdom reign. And through all those times, the Holy Spirit has a part to play. The Holy Spirit has a very active role. And so that's why. Thirdly, in this little section here, between verses 8 and 11, we have this phrase, when he comes. And that's referring to the day of Pentecost, not, not at this point, his indwelling. And, and at that time, when he comes, when the Spirit shows up, 
In Acts 2, he will convict the world of sin, specifically the world's sin of unbelief. And this conviction will bring about the repentance of some. Praise the Lord. Secondly, he says that he will convict of righteousness. In other words, the world's false sense of righteousness. The fact that the world, frankly, is, is, is under the control of Satan. And they are right in their own eyes. And for some, they will then recognize their true need for righteousness through a righteous Savior who can take away their sin and give them His righteousness. And thirdly, He will convict concerning judgment. Again, the world being under the devil's control and making its judgments, meaning the world making its judgments based on His influence. That is to say, the world's judgments are are horribly wrong and perverse and is oh, it's playing out right now in our world very evil and blind. And the worst judgment that the world has made is their judgment concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the worst. Number four in verse 13, again, he's identified as the spirit of truth. He will guide the disciples and consequently believers into all Truth, this truth is what the Holy Spirit hears and knows from Christ and from the Father. And for us today, this again means by way of God's Holy Spirit-inspired word and how the Holy Spirit then in us causes us to understand the word, the spiritual truths of the Bible. And fifthly, verses 14 and 15, the Holy Spirit, he will glorify the Son and he will glorify the Son for disclosing the truths of the Son, which are also the truths of the Father to us. In other words, from the Father to the Son to the Holy Spirit to us. And the more we know and the more we learn about Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, the more we love him, the more we know him, the more we glorify him. Now there's, there's one last passage that I want to bring your attention to in the book of John because I think it's sometimes a little misunderstood. It can be misunderstood. With that, turn to John chapter 20. Turn to John 20. This is, it's still the Sunday of Jesus' resurrection. He is now manifesting himself to the disciples while they are in the locked upper room because they are in fear that the Romans may be coming after them for being Jesus' followers. And now there's these stories out there of Jesus' resurrection. So they're scared. They're frightened. They've got the doors closed. They've got the doors locked. And Jesus, I say manifest because that's what he does. He just appears to them. He doesn't knock on the door. Hello, it's Jesus. Can you open the door, please? He just shows up. And of course, that would then cause them to be even a little more freaked out. And this tells us that his glorified body, and I hope and pray that we can ascertain from this, our glorified bodies are going to be so cool. 
Because they are going to have some really amazing supernatural properties to them. But look at verse 19 of John chapter 20. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. I got to say, I mean, that would be an important thing for him to say, right? Because you can, again, imagine, right? He just materializes in front of them. And verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Verse 21, so Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And I think most of us have this picture of Jesus. (sighs) Receive the Holy Spirit. Right? And there's just some general confusion about kind of what's going on here. Some have, oh man, I just got like lightheaded from (laughs) Like, whoa. (laughs) Breathe. (sighs) Some have said that because there is no definite article in the Greek... It literally reads, receive Holy Spirit, not the Holy Spirit, hagios pneuma, receive Holy Spirit, that this then differentiates the Spirit from the paraclete or helper and the giving of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost. Like, okay, there's, there's two different deals going on. Uh, they've said, well, it's, it's not the personal Holy Spirit who's in view here, but it's, it's this impersonal breath of God, emblematic of power and spiritual gift. Others have said that this is, well, it's, it's an actual impartation of the Holy Spirit, but they like to define things in such a way as to allow room for a second impartation at the day of Pentecost, that there are two impartations of the Spirit, not just one, a third popular view is that this is, this is John's understanding of the impartation of the Holy Spirit. You might say this is John's Pentecost moment, if you will, and, and that it, was, it had to happen after Jesus was resurrected but still in his glorified body there on earth. Some would even go as far as to say that John's not even looking ahead to Pentecost in Acts 2, that, that this is it. This is the way John understood it. This is the impartation. This is now the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And suffice it to say, and I wish I could go into all of these deeper. We just don't have the time to do it. But there are many problems with all of these uh, interpretations that I have given to you. I'm going to offer you one last one that, that personally to me just seems uh, in my mind the most probable based on what I see in the text. And, and, and as I give this to you, remember... Jesus was clear that the Holy Spirit would not be sent until after he went back to the Father. Meaning, after his ascension to the Father. Then he would send his Holy Spirit as the paraclete. And we already looked at that in John 16. So this phrase, he breathed on them, it's not exactly grammatically correct if that's what your Bible says. Because in the, in the actual Greek, there is no on them. There's no on them attached to the Greek word for breathed. 
which is uh, emphusao, emphusao. The most it can be understood, emphusao, would be breathed in or breathed on, but there's no them. There's a, a host of grammatical evidence as to why on them should not be attached to the word. Uh, D.A. Carson, for instance, says, quote, the verb emphusao is absolute in John 20, verse 22, i.e., it has no auxiliary structure, not even a direct object, end quote. Thus, the phrase should be rendered, and when he said this, he breathed and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So then if we go that route, you say, well, why would the text tell us he breathed? I mean, that sounds kind of strange. And there's some different ideas about this. I think the most logical is the fact that this is still, again, his post-resurrection, first post-resurrection appearance to all of them as a group. After manifesting in the room with the doors locked, Luke 24 and verse 37 tells us that when this happened, they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. They thought they were seeing a ghost. And this is why Jesus immediately shows them his hands, his feet, his side, so they know it's really him. In Luke's account, you remember what he does too? He says, "Uh, give me some fish. And he eats some fish to show That he's a real person. In other words, the fact that he breathed is just another proof from Luke that Jesus is the real deal. He's not some kind of ghost or a spirit. And in fact, the only reason that this has been translated, he breathed on them, is because the phrase received the Holy Spirit. It just seems, well, that's got to go with that. Because if, if the received the Holy Spirit wasn't there, the translators wouldn't have included on them. It would have just been, he breathed. They just did it to link the two. They thought that sounded better, or it seemed more of the case. This all being said, it means the phrase, receive the Holy Spirit, stands on its own. It stands on its own. So if that's the case, how do we understand it? What's going on here? And when considering the fact that Jesus has already said, remember, that the Holy Spirit will only be sent once he returns to the Father and What Jesus will say to the disciples in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, indicating he hasn't come upon you yet, not in this context. And I think this is telling too that there is no evidence of anything being different with the disciples between that moment in the upper room until the day of Pentecost. Right? In other words, if Jesus was giving some special impartation of the Spirit, well, you just don't see anything different about that. Nothing unique or extraordinary happens with them until you get to the day of Pentecost. In fact, what you see eight days later is they're still in the locked room because they're scared. They're frightened still. And that's when, when finally Thomas uh, is there as well. So, yes, they don't have any kind of special power. All this then tells us that that phrase, receive the Spirit, is still looking forward to the future. 
It's still in a future sense. And in fact, the verb itself, the verb tense is that of, you know, I give you this because it's important. It's an aorist active imperative, which just, it tells us then that this is a command. It is expected to be followed, but without respect to time. Meaning it could be any time, including in the future. It would be like saying to somebody, hey, have a happy birthday. Right? Even though their birthday is not then. The birthday's in the future. You're telling them to have a happy birthday, but they understand, yes, that means when it's my birthday. That's when they want me to have a happy birthday, right? Something to take place at a given point in time in the future. In other words, Jesus is giving them a reminder of what's to come. That sometime in the near future, we know it's the day of Pentecost, right? They are to receive the Holy Spirit. Because he talked about that in the upper room, right? But then Jesus goes to the cross. He resurrects. I mean, even though it's a short amount of time, that's some pretty intense stuff that's going on with them, right? So Jesus wants to remind them, receive the Holy Spirit. Of course, that will be when the time comes on the day of Pentecost, sometime in the future. And, and I would say that even, even if you were one that wanted to link the two, um, this, this, this Jesus breathing with the receiving of the Holy Spirit, it's still only a symbolic reminder of what's to come. Carson puts it this way, quote, Jesus' breath and command to receive the Holy Spirit are best understood as a, a kind of acted parable pointing forward to the full endowment still to come, end quote. All right, we've gotten through John. We've gotten through John. We're just going to, like I said, be at the beginning of Acts. So turn to Acts. We'll see the work of the Holy Spirit in Acts. Go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We pick up with Jesus and the disciples... Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. And uh, as I read 1 to 8, look for two things. Look for the mentioning of the Holy Spirit, how many times you see the Holy Spirit, and look then also for the function of the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit was, was doing or the work the Holy Spirit was doing or had done. Okay, so as we read through this, keep those two things in mind. Uh, okay, let's see. Um, Luke says this. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, he's writing to Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. Did you figure out the work of the Holy Spirit? We see the Holy Spirit mentioned three times in there, right? Three times. Back in verse 2, this reference to the Holy Spirit and the fact that the orders he gave to the apostles were generated by the Holy Spirit. What were those orders? Those orders were for, of course, the Great Commission. The Great Commission. So given to them by means of the Holy Spirit, by way of the Holy Spirit. And you have to remember that Jesus' mission as the Son of God sent to earth is not to do his own will, right? But to do the will of him who sent him, which is to say the Father and done through the Spirit. Luke also knows the prominent role that the Holy Spirit will be playing, just looking ahead, of course, to chapter 2. Now, we also see that this baptism of the Holy Spirit in verse 5 is not a water baptism. In fact, they had uh, the disciples presumably been baptized already in the Jordan River, either by John or Jesus. The word literally means to dip, but it is also understood in the sense of being immersed or saturated, or even overwhelmed by. And in this case, verse 8 tells us that the Holy Spirit will come upon the disciples, and they will be given power for the purpose of being Jesus' witnesses out there in the world, and perpetuating the gospel. That was those three mentionings and three purposes there of the Holy Spirit. Then after this, Jesus ascends back to heaven to sit at the Father's right hand. The disciples were still gathering in the upper room, continually devoting themselves to prayer. And this also then included Jesus' women followers. They recount what happened with Judas and Peter, uh, excuse me, with Judas. And then Peter leads them in choosing the choosing of Matthias to replace Judas. This is what we see with that second half of Acts chapter 1. Look ahead to chapter 2 and what happened then on the day of Pentecost. Because all this has been building up to this moment. The day of Pentecost was a Jewish festival celebrated 50, hence the name Pentecost. 50 days after Passover. Remember that Jesus died Over Passover is the Passover lamb. Then we found out that he was on earth for 40 days before he ascended back to the Father. Now, 10 more days have passed, which brings us to the day of Pentecost, also known as the Feast of Weeks, because it occurred seven weeks after Passover. It's also referred to as the day of harvest, or first fruits, because it celebrates the end of one season and the beginning of the next. This festival was, it was an important one for the Jews, so much so that it required, or they were supposed to make a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem, bringing their gifts and offerings for the Lord. Hence, when we see here coming up, all these um, Jews from all over the kind of Roman Empire, and that's why they all spoke different languages they all spoke different languages because they were from these different places okay that's the the scene here jerusalem's crowded with these folks and it's appropriate i think that god chose this time to really 
kind of kick off the New Testament church because Pentecost looks back at what has happened with the harvest, right, and gives praise to God. But man, it's also looking forward to the new season, the next harvest. So Acts 2, verses 1 to 18. It's going to be a chunk of text here, but it's important, I think, that we read the whole thing. When the day of Pentecost had come, they, the they is referring to the disciples, were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise, like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And we just need to interject here and say, this means these folks were given the gift of speaking in already known languages, languages that they just hadn't previously learned. They weren't speaking gibberish. It was known languages. Verse 5, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them, meaning the people, was hearing them, the disciples, speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Right? How could, how could they do this? If they're all Galileans from the same place, how can they all know all these different languages? Look at verse 8. And how is it that we, that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? So the, the, the miracle here is on the speaking of the languages, not on the hearing. Okay, It's not that they were speaking the, 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 all the same dialect and everybody's hearing it differently. They were indeed speaking these different languages. Verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, uh, Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity saying to one another, What does this mean? What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine, right? They're drunk, they're drunk. But Peter, taking a stand with the 11, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk. As you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes Joel chapter 2. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. We're going to pause there. He continues on, because there's more to Joel's prophecy, but this is the part that was being fulfilled at that time 
and that place. The quote from Joel uh, has now been fulfilled there on the day of Pentecost, at least Joel 2, verses 17 to 18. And it is what Jesus told the disciples about the paraclete coming, the helper, the Holy Spirit, back in those passages of John that we just read. Peter then continues preaching with what amounts to the gospel. And then he wraps things up in verse 36. You can jump over to verse 36 if you like. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, end quote. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now check this verse, this next part out, friends. You might want to make a note here, underline, put a little note in your margin. He says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for All who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call to himself. You need to mark that because I don't know about you, but I have all kinds of occasions where I've been trying to talk to people and tell them about the indwelling of the Spirit and where that comes from and and what are some of the passages. Start right there. It is crystal clear in black and white. This is such an important passage because it tells us precisely that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for is, is, is for a believer, and it's for all believers. And it begins right then and there. And from that moment on, anyone, anyone who would repent of their sins and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in what he did on the cross by going to the cross in their place and by dying for them, having his blood shed for them, his body broke for them, that he indeed is the one who can forgive sins because he is God. And, and, and not just that he died, but then he spends those, those three days in the grave, dead, until he victoriously, miraculously resurrects. Compliments of the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son. He comes back to life. And, and that gives full assurance that, that the pardon is, is true. The pardon is sure. There is forgiveness of sins. And not just forgiveness of sins, but there is eternal life. And then now we understand that then we get the Holy Spirit. There isn't anything special you have to do at that moment of salvation. By, by, by the fact of your repentance and belief and trust in these truths, then the Holy Spirit is inside of you and this then can easily be affirmed many other places in scripture for instance you can put these in your little margin there see first corinthians three sixteen, when paul says do you not know that you are a temple of god speaking to christians and that the spirit of god dwells in you in other words because he does Or 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? You should, right? Because again, he's in you. Romans 8, 9 to 11, Paul um, keeps referring to the fact, 
that Jesus' spirit, also the spirit of Christ, the spirit of God, dwells in you, the believer. And in Ephesians 2 and verse 22 tells Christians that we are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. So it's for us as individuals, but then we also see this as the church. Tremendous truths, friends. All that Jesus said to them back in John is now taking place. And so what, are, what, what is in here for us? What are the implications for us today? I, you should be picking these things up. And it's really not so different from the last couple of weeks that we've been considering here. But it is, it's about giving God glory. It's about giving the Holy Spirit the praise and glory that he deserves for the work he does, all the while being God. But, but friends, even this side of the cross, we see the power of the Holy Spirit. We see the power of the Holy Spirit today. Actually, let's go back before this side of the cross, back to the Gospels. It's the Holy Spirit that continued to do the miracles in the Gospels. And rest assured, any miracle that would be done today, not the least of which is salvation, is still a work by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the greatest miracle that the Holy Spirit, I think, does today, is to save people. And that's what the Holy Spirit did back with the old covenant saint too. Saving people. And it's not to say that there aren't miracles out there. Well, We'll talk next week about whether or not the gift of miracles is, is prevalent or out there today. But, but, um, but no, any miracle that does take place, you, you've heard them. You, you know, you've prayed for somebody, and, and, uh, or maybe even you haven't prayed for somebody, but, but somebody had you know cancer, and then they go to the doctor, and now they don't, right? I mean, there's, you know, we sit here and, Go crazy on the miracles that are done today, all by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, too, that Jesus said it would be to our advantage. We sometimes get in this mindset of, oh, man, if I'd only lived back then, right? Oh, if I was only there with Jesus, oh, man, things would have been so different. Oh, that would have been so, yeah, it would have been awesome, no doubt about it. But here's the thing. Jesus says it's to our advantage. It's going to be better for you if I go away because you will get the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's now going to live inside of you. And so while the, the old covenant saint had God with them in the sense of leading them, right? Leading them, like, for instance, through the desert, by way of the pillar of fire and the cloud, dwelling in the tabernacle, dwelling in the temple, at times even audibly speaking with them and doing amazing supernatural miracles. They didn't have the Holy Spirit permanently indwelling them. That's for us. That's something unique for us. It's unique in that it's personal, the Holy Spirit in you leads you and seals you and helps you and teaches you and guides you and directs you and fills you and walks with you and leads you and illuminates your, your minds and intercedes for you and prays on your behalf and gifts you and, and one day will glorify you. That's what we get with the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And friends, don't forget, too, that to have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, 
It's to have the very spirit of Christ in you. Is that not a remarkable thing? Is that not just one of the most awesome things? To have Christ's very own spirit in us. As you possess the spirit, you also possess Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as always for your word and what we can learn and glean from from its truth and about the Holy Spirit. And Lord, this Thanksgiving, may we just give you thanks for the indwelling of your spirit, even the spirit of Christ. Thank you for coming in and living in us and doing all of these things on our behalf to be our paraclete, our helper, our comforter, our advocate. We just want you to be glorified. If there's anyone here that needs to to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior, I pray they would just pray a prayer of repentance, a prayer of just, I'm sorry for my sin, and I believe what Jesus did and accomplished me on the cross by way of his death, burial, and resurrection. We pray all of this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.